0: Welcome back to More Than Numbers Enneagram for Business. Today we have a very special treat, a very special guest. He is a marketing genius, author, and culture creator. He helped to build the creative culture at Elevation Church. He is now the GM for Tiny Horse, where they work with many brands, many well-known brands such as Walmart, uh, Dancing with the Stars, other companies, and helping them to grow in their marketing and their digital uh, presence Larry Hubaca. He's also an author of a book titled You Little Jerk. He is an Enneagram Type 8. His book is about creating culture within your business. So I know you all are going to enjoy this episode. Even if you are not a Type 8, listen in. He has a lot of wisdom for leading teams and growing businesses. Enjoy.
1: Well, Larry, we're super excited to have you here today on our podcast. First off, we want to know, tell us your Enneagram type and how you were introduced to it all in the first place.
2: Sure. So I'm an eight with a seven wing. And the introduction, I can't remember exactly how I was introduced, but I'm pretty sure it was my wife. And I'm guessing it was through a Richard Rohr book. So um, probably rode back to you. I want to say that she's got a close friend who's a counselor who probably introduced us to the topic to begin with. We started reading the books and... Um, actually, you know what? I don't think that's true. (laughs) I think we got, (laughs) I think we got introduced to it through a couple friends, a couple friends who live in Seattle. Gosh, you know, I'm I'm not sure to one of those two, to one of those two, but that's where we, you know, first (laughs) were introduced and then we got real excited about it quickly because one, it was super easy to understand, but then two, it was just so enlightening because you could actually apply it because of all the other, um, Profiling tools, you know, Myers Briggs, Strengths Finders, uh, Disc, any of these. Enneagram seemed like it was the easiest for us to do something with. So, for example, if I'm an ENTJ, it was kind of hard for me to actually apply that. Now, I'm sure a lot of people can do it great. I just wasn't good at it and it didn't kind of like naturally connect with me. But right. when you start thinking Enneagram, eight, it's a lot of letters. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> As an eight with the seven wing, you know, it was an easier application. So, I mean, I think I said this maybe in one of our early conversations, but in 20 years, certainly one of the best tools, if not the best tool we've used to just foster relationship and context in our in our conversations, in our marriage.
0: I love that, that we're kind of jumping into there as well. And you had told us in a previous conversation that your wife is actually an Enneagram coach. That's so right. I'm just curious because my wife lives with an Enneagram coach. What is it like living with someone as an Enneagram coach?
2: <laughs> so you're telling, you're asking me how did tell you what your wife thinks about you.
0: Yeah, maybe because I do know I can't <laughs> shut up about it. And then now that people know what I do, we go to any type of outing or
2: gathering and they're like, hey, sure. let's talk
0: more about it. It's very hard sure. to turn that, that off.
2: Yeah, I think it's awesome. Again, it's all uh, to me depend on the value you place on it. For me, it's incredibly valuable. And so one, you know, she's my wife. And so you have all the uh, factors that go along with just who your wife is relationally uh, in your life. But on top of that, the insight that she has around not just the the data or the facts or the information around the Enneagram, but similarly to what I just said, the application of it is kind of everything. So her ability to connect the dots between things is great. What's funny is, and I imagine this is the case for a lot of people who kind of deep dive into it or they're real hot on the Enneagram right now, you find yourself putting everything in the context of the Enneagram. So, you know, jokingly, we will, uh, talk about how our dogs are like one's an eight and one's probably a seven, and then I start making stuff up about like, oh, this cup of coffee. Oh yeah, this is definitely like a four. She just like it's like being silly with it in jest, but it's good because she is really good about grounding us and saying like, hey, don't forget. Is, let's say we're talking to our kids. We can't say that to our daughter who's a four because she doesn't receive information that way. So yes, you like to deliver information that way. That's certainly not going to be effective because she's like hearing an entirely different message. So that is awesome. Now, I can imagine some people probably don't like that cuz it's like, thanks coach, I don't need that like all the time 24/7 coaching. I I tend to like that, so it works awesome for us. And it's yeah. not like she does it all the time, but she certainly has that wisdom that I respect, so I love it.
0: What is and what is
2: her Enneagram type? She's a 1 with a 2 wing. I was going to I was kind of deliberating like 9 wing because I think she would tell you there are definitely moments where you see my nine come out, but she's a, a one wing two. In fact, for Christmas or not Christmas, uh, maybe her birthday recently, I just got her a, a, a little coffee cup, customized coffee cup that says one W two on the side of it. And I said, everybody, you know who this belongs
0: to. Nice. Very nice. There's <laughs> something about that eight in one connection. Uh, we just interviewed a couple, Jeremy and Jennifer Frankoski. Uh He's an eight. She's a one. Okay. Um, I'm an eight. Lamar's a one. And then the Benham brothers, uh, David is an eight, and Jason is a one, and now of course they're stuck together. But again, that connection just seems to work really well. So, how have you seen that uh, using the enneagram and understanding each other be impactful for your marriage?
2: Well, it certainly helps because we we share a lot of the um, similar thoughts around, you know, maybe motivation and the way to do things. Uh, I think it sometimes can be a little bit fiery or explosive because you know I don't know how how deep we're going to get into this, but when you get people who are Uh, all or both aligned in the gut triad there's a lot of like yeah i really like really feel like we should yeah i think we better do that and there's a lot of kind of instinct gut conversations and sometimes that can get a little like uh more subjective (laughs) so some strong opinions flying every once in a while but generally speaking it I, i like it but again it's what i know so i might like whatever we have but this is what we have
1: Tell us a little bit about that difference between your relationship with your wife before you were introduced to Enneagram as compared to when you knew about it.
2: Yeah, I think it's just context, right? I mean, I I would have said we had a great relationship, a really good marriage. We've been married 20 years and I would have said our marriage was, was, um, was really good. I think what has happened is, is um, as we've become more aware our context has grown. And so now we probably understand a little bit more of why we make certain decisions or why we feel certain ways.
1: Mm-hmm. So if
2: I think through um, kind of the traditional eight profile, you know, the thing that eights are supposed to be, uh, that are supposed to trigger eights as much as anything, right, would be betrayal. Well, as I start to like think through betrayals, I start to discover experiences I've had in my past. And oh my gosh, isn't that interesting? While that wasn't a betrayal it felt like it was to me or it seemed like it was starting to flirt with that line and, and kind of like tiptoe over to it. And it started to set me off or triggered me or it kind of like elevated my emotions. So that context is, you know, relatively new in the last, Oh, I don't know, three, four five years. Um, but super helpful, right? You certainly yeah. want to know, sometimes you don't like the answer. Or you don't like what you discover, but I still want to know because that I can work with. Yeah.
0: Well, to be completely uh, transparent here, you talked about the relationship between an eight and a one getting, uh, what did you say? Very explosive. Yeah, it can be. (laughs)
1: Lamar,
0: you want to share how mad you got at me before we started this recording earlier? We could just be honest about it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, we were when we were coming up with the whole uh, contrast between leading questions versus color commentary. uh, We had one plan going into it. And then the plan was completely forgot about. And I'm like, now we're switching it up. And I'm like, you're killing me. Cause I had my mind ready and prepared <laughs> to do it one way. And then now we're flipping it, flipping flopping. And he's, and he's like, Lamar, the injustice.
2: <laughs> the injustice. <laughs> tell me more about that. That's right. The injustice of that. I mean, this is what my wife would tell me all the time, right? One's live in truth and, and the injustice of situations can really like set them off. And so, I mean, who knows, right? We can do this pretty quickly where we start to, um, overanalyze things or even kind of get into the like the psycho babble range of thinking through things at like a probably an unhealthy level but in this instance my guess is Lamar's like I got a plan we got a right way to do this because it was the way that we decided to do it which is the right way to do it now and when you change it the injustice of now putting us back on our heels and feeling like we can't deliver and it's not going to be as good I get it yeah we um it wasn't
0: that I wanted to change it. I kind of just forgot and I got really excited. and then I couldn't imagine because the original plan now that Lamar so kindly reminded me was he would ask the questions and then I would bring in the commentary. And then I thought, oh, I thought I was asking the questions and that's all I said. and he was like, so now you want to change it? I said, no, I just forgot. I'm okay with this. Just help me to remember why I would agree to you doing the questions and me doing the commentary. What was really cool is he was able to speak to my eightness and say, hey, like, you do the commentary because that can just be free flowing whenever you want it to be. I'll yeah. stick to the questions because those are more rigid and you know we can follow those. He said, if you stuck to the questions, you'd be really frustrated that you have to stick to a script. I said, okay, you're right. But he was able to speak directly to what he was seeing in me. And I was able to then say, Lamar, I
1: wasn't changing it. I just forgot. So let's just yeah, get back it. on track. We could do things right. <laughs> That's great. Can you, th- can you think of moments like that with you and your wife where uh, there's a little bit of that? Like you say it one way and it wasn't really clicking and you're like, oh crap, okay, let me let me diverge that into something different and land on our ears better.
2: You know, I don't know if I can think of a specific example off the top of my head, but I can give you a general example that tends to kind of surface every once in a while. This is one of like the greatest revelations I had about the Enneagram. So ones versus eight, and I know we'll kind of get stuck on this, this relationship because it's what we are, but um, ones and their inner critic... Right, so I'm sure Lamar, this resonates with you to some degree. It's just always firing, right? It's always telling you, "Hey, here's all your shortcomings. Here's where you're deficient. Here's where you're you're just not delivering. You're not meeting standards. You're not, um, and maybe just not good enough in this area." Whereas an eight on the other side, you know, we're we're generally people who don't really struggle with self assurance. You know, we probably think opposite in the fact that we think we're probably much better than we are. Right. We think we're doing better and, and, and like maybe more capable, more competent, where you tend to be like optimistic in our ability to pull something off. In fact, this morning I was, I was working out and I was on the bike and I got off um, the bike and I was talking to Kelly and I just said, okay, it's really weird that sometimes it was a hard, it was like a 30 minute class. And this instructor is kind of known for being like really uh, tough. And this instructor was doing a Tabata. So 20 seconds on uh, where you go, 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 10 seconds of rest. And you do that eight times.
1: Oh, those are brutal.
2: Yeah, it was terrible. And so for this particular sequence, it was uh, 20 seconds on, but you had to go at like um, uh, 100 to 120 RPMs. You had to pedal as fast as you can and the resistance was at kind of a certain level. So I was doing that as fast as I could. And for like the first three or four, I was dying. And as soon as I hit that 20 second mark, she's like, All right, back off. You get 10 seconds. And I'm, I'm literally working out, going, I'm <sighs> by myself and I'm dying. If there's eight sets or circuits, probably like five, six, seven, you know, I'm like not hitting the benchmarks. I'm like going about half speed. And in my mind, I was going as hard as I could, but it was like I physically could not get there. So after the, the workout, I told Kelly, I was like, It is so weird that. Of course, you know me, I feel like there's nothing I can't do, but I physically could not pedal fast. I just did not have enough strength. And so I had to like take a break for a couple sets and then I kind of finished strong and hit, hit the last one in like our, the range I wanted to be in. So to get back to your question, she wakes up every morning with this inner critic that's firing, starts the day, like frankly, in a deficit, right? Like all the things that she wants to do better today or, or all the things that um, um, she knows where she can improve. When she said that to me initially, this is maybe a few years ago now, I remember thinking, that doesn't even make sense to me. Mm-hmm. I've never, yeah, I'm sure I am sure i have, but generally speaking, I've never woken up thinking um, I'm starting in a hole. I'm usually waking mm-hmm. up thinking some some version of like, oh, this is gonna be a great day. I feel awesome today. I'm gonna do great today. <laughs> and so, you know, your question, Lamar, about where does that start to surface? I think it comes up in conversations where she'll tell me, yeah, I know. You're like, um uh, Mr. Confidence over here. I think we can do anything where it gets us in trouble is when I don't live in reality. And that certainly happens too, or she'll, she'll be the one that like kind of brings us down to earth. Hey, you can't get everywhere in 20 minutes. And I'm like perpetually late. And she's like, you just can't do it. I know you think you can, but it's physically impossible. That's 25 miles away and it's through the city. Okay. So it's going to take like probably 45 minutes, probably like 20 to 45 minutes. She's like, to She's like it's impossible. You just don't even know what you're talking about. But that's probably where it shows up the most, where my confidence you know, actually becomes a weakness because then I don't live in reality. Whereas her inner critic makes sure that we actually kind of live much closer to reality. And I think we do a good job of kind of pulling each other up or down or kind of back towards what's real, which is, I mean, that's, that's a good thing, right? It's just sometimes hard because I don't want to hear it. And sometimes she doesn't want to hear it, but in the opposite directions.
1: No, hundred percent. Thanks for sharing that. And, and one yeah. thing I want to say to the listeners is just because you're, you might not be an eight or a one don't tune out because there's people in your life that are operating this way. And it's so important and crucial to know whether you're leading them or following them that you're understanding how they're, how they're ticking and how they're wired. And it's not always so much malicious. A lot of the times it's just the thoughts that are, that are happening in their head. That's so, right. You wrote a book called You Little Jerk. Such yeah, an okay, interesting it title.
2: Somewhere.
1: <laughs> yeah, show show us.
2: Yes, you little uh, jerk.
1: <laughs> love it. Love I it. also love your your picture at the bottom right. It's like it's like you have you do have one of those looks about you. It's like you can just kind of like Keanu has the bald head and the beard. It's like one of those black and white kind of faces that'll that work well as a logo. <laughs> But anyways, you wrote this, this book, you little jerk, such an interesting title. Can you tell us about the inspiration of that and, and what you wanted it to, to bring to your readers? Sure.
2: So I have always had an interest in culture, but in the same way, I just described the Enneagram providing some context for maybe motivation or you know, some of the decision making process I go through culture for me was something I was really interested in for years, but I didn't really understand it. I didn't have a language for it. And I'd say maybe let's say five years ago, it might've been like six or seven. I'm not exactly sure. But a while ago, I started to read a few articles that gave it some context, you know, probably 10 years ago, maybe a little more, maybe 15, you started to see culture really become a hot topic. And so there were books put out by Disney, Starbucks, uh, Zappos on what it looked like to create culture. And, and in short, I would say culture is just a way of life, right? You, you have one, regardless of whether you've done it intentionally or not, whether it's helpful or, or unhealthy. There is a culture, right? there's a way of life. What I wanted was I wanted to create a resource in a format. So, I mean, you can see this is like, I don't know, it's 200 pages. It's probably broken up into 25 or 30 little chapters, but I wanted to write something that uh, was written in a format that I would like to read. So it's like a couple hour read. It's very easy, but it was kind of the insight around how to create culture, because I think most people have a sentiment around what is it that we're trying to accomplish And then Simon Sinek and a variety of others have kind of um, pulled the why out of that what, which I think is awesome. Total fan of that. And then I think the culture piece is the how out of that what. So what you do and how you do it. And that's always been of interest to me because I do think that um, we can check boxes and we can accomplish a lot of things. But I'd actually really like to enjoy the process of doing that. You know, one, I think it's biblical. I think that's important for us. I don't think this is just about a destination, right? This is hopefully about how we live life. And culture for me was always about how can we live life in the process of accomplishing these great things that we believe that we're called to do, or these things that we have a passion or an interest in bringing together. And um, because I had such a passion for it, you know, I wrote this, I literally voice dictated this thing in my car over like the course of a, you know, maybe a year or so. Wow. And I just did it a little bit every day and just did little modules, which is probably why it's written in some little small chapters, probably the length of my drives. And um, I just, I wanted something so somebody could see it and think like, oh, I get it. That's how culture comes together. And then they can decide whether or not they they care, at least care enough to, to actually go through the process. But This is a little bit of my philosophy, I think, in in decision-making. So you know, I run an agency now, marketing agency now, same thing here. I'm working with clients, working with um, uh, the teams we had when I was working at at the church. I want us to feel informed, and then we can make whatever decision we choose to make. We have control of our lives still, but it's hard to make good decisions if you're not informed. So this book should say, um, here's my take on how you create culture. You have the option to create one. Um, regardless of whether or not you want to. So if you want to, here's how I believe you do it. Now you get to decide, okay, great. I do want to do that. Or I hear you. I understand it. I'm not interested. Yeah.
0: from the perspective of of a type eight, what about your personality? Well, one, the title, you little jerk. It seems very aggressive and I really like it personally. (laughs) But what in your personality led to uh, creating this book? Where do you see the parallels there?
2: What in my personality? Uh, Well, I mean, I think eights in general have a little bit of a well, here's what I would do mentality, right? <laughs> so writing kind of a prescriptive book or like an instructional book, a paint by numbers book is like in the wheelhouse of every eight. So, you know, we have opinions. There's definitely never going to be a shortage of of what we think you should do. And going back to that um, book, Road Back to You, in the beginning of every section, I think you you can recall the, I think it's the left page opening the chapter. There's a little breakdown of like, 20 kind of thoughts attributes concepts of that particular type and for an eight the one that's always stuck out to me was um say to yourself you know 100 times a day what if i'm not right (laughs) and i just thought it's so true but it doesn't matter because i think i'm right all the time and my opinions i think are right and i think they're the best and it's the downside of an eight but it's a necessary element or ingredient in the larger conversation as long as again it's coupled with a one or maybe, um, uh, you know, even a nine in some instances or, or uh, a four who can kind of soften it for you. Yeah. So that's probably the motivator. I like telling people what to do. So if you go through strengths finders, one of my top strengths is command, right? Can you Can you command a team? Can you lead a team? So it works in some areas, and it becomes a weakness for me in others. Yeah,
0: yeah. You know, saying on on strengths, I think that was a great transition. I love when our listeners do that, or our sorry, our guests just set us up. But I was going to ask you about strengths because you said that you dictated, uh, you know, talk to to text the book instead of sitting down and writing it. I can't help but think that that was something of a self awareness of understanding your strengths, or was it time? What made you do that instead of a traditional writing method?
2: Sure, I so I have a little bit of a um. I don't know. I'm like always trying to hack life. Right. And, you know, most of the time unsuccessfully, I think this is kind of like the byproduct of people who have a little bit of this mindset. How do we do it better, faster, cheaper? And one, I don't consider myself much of a writer. And I certainly, you know, uh, was really proud that I accomplished this in writing a book, but um, the way I describe myself most of the time is I'm a functional writer, meaning I think I can get the job done, but when you read good writers, so right now I'm reading through the Harry Potter series. I've actually never read through it and um i don't know how it happened but i read the first book years ago and uh, maybe my wife was reading through it or something i said i should read that too it's such a a pop culture phenomenon i should i should probably just again be aware be educated so i'm reading through it jk rowling she's a good writer okay (laughs) when she can kind of transform words into a vision that you can picture in your head and take you there i mean that's a good writer I'm not that, I'm not anywhere in that category. I'm much more of like, I can put the words on paper and convince somebody to publish it. And I'm probably convince a few people to buy it. But I don't see myself you know, sitting on the top of a whole lot of lists. But I also know that that's not really my intent, right? Some of it is it's in me, I need to get it out of me. Um, so that, that's good. But from a writing standpoint, um, I don't really enjoy the process. I think some people love it. So I would rather sit here and talk and either voice dictate or, you know, if I do another book, frankly, I'll probably sit down with the microphone and just, you know, kind of talk and record and go have it transcribed for a hundred bucks and then, and then clean it up after the fact, which, you know, most people would say, Hey, reading written word is a lot different than listening to somebody. So yeah, there's going to be some deficiencies. It's probably not going to be incredible, but the priority for me in putting a book together is to communicate information and, I would love people to help me refine that so it's communicated as um, as well as it can be, so it can be easily ingested. But I'm also prioritizing delivering information um, and trying to encourage and inspire and, and instruct people more than um, creating this like uh, aspirational or kind of like whimsical experience for people by transporting them into this world. That's not my skill set. Yeah.
0: Well, I do appreciate that because um, one thing that I've been wanting to do is is there's this battle of not necessarily thinking that I need to write a book, but there's, as you said, there's something inside of me and I want to get it out. And even myself, I found myself kind of controlled or stuck in the confines of what does that look like? right? How am I supposed to do that? Because I don't necessarily like to write and I really love to talk. So that's why our (laughs) podcast is consistent every single week. Um, But my CMO said, Hey, write a blog every week. And that's not as consistent because writing just isn't my thing. So I think that you really blessed a lot of people with them understanding that, Hey, there's more than one way to do a thing and you can, you know, work to your strengths to still just, just get it out.
2: Yeah, that's right. And there's a little bit of like a bucket list component, right? Writing a book's kind of cool; makes me feel um, good for having finished it. But nobody gets rich writing books. Uh, well, I shouldn't say nobody. Uh, most people <laughs> don't get rich writing books. Usually, it's a it's a core concept or it's a core message or a narrative that you have to deliver that gets expressed in a variety of different formats: books, podcasts, uh, video, social media. So. Uh, I mean, I think we would all agree that we believe in the beginning was the word. So do you have something to say? And if you've got a message that you want to deliver, great. Just figure out the format that works for you and then go deliver it that way. Knowing that something like a book is cool and technology allows us to distribute things easily now more so than than probably ever in history. But, you know, a book is a book. It's cool. It's it's one thing. It's I've got gifts I can give to people. Fun. <laughs> but yeah, and now if you're I an to author if I want to say, mm-hmm. if I want to go deliver a message, I might leverage social as much as I'd leverage any tool right now. Um, but again, some of it for me is like, I know my preferences and my, uh, my um, uh, interests and social is kind of functional for me. I don't live on it um, and love it the way that some people do. Um, so I'm trying not to like uh, pretend like I'm going to embrace social. Like it's the platform that I've got to build now. a certain level of discipline where you just have to have a presence. Um, I think if you want to have any kind of platform, so I'm kind of in that mid tier category. Some people are incredible at it. I'm again, a little more functional.
1: So one thing, one thing that you said that I really caught on to and it kind of leads to our next section. um, You mentioned it's not just writing the book. It's, it's the book, it's the podcast. It's the multiple ways of, of, of getting out the ideas that instantly made me think of elevation. There's a number of different ways that they're reaching people and I know that you were um, involved with Elevation Church, which is an understatement. <laughs> you were heavily involved in the beginnings of Elevation Church. So can you tell me a little bit about that experience and also how you tied in culture? Because it's very unique and um, all that. I, I just love to hear your insight on that. Sure. So my
2: wife and I found the church online in December 2005. So at the time, the church was meeting in a little community center uh, upstairs room. There were probably 40 people the first time we went. And um, we walked in and, and really fell in love with it the first time. The one thing I can tell you is in, I guess it's been 15 years or so since that that day, um, probably 15 years, like maybe to the day, um, early December 2020 now, the DNA really has not changed much at all. The expression of that DNA, I think has um, has evolved. But I think the DNA is like Generally, the same, right? That level of passion, that level of fervor, um, the excitement, the energy, and some of it is, you know, it, it'll kind of follow the leader. So as Pastor Stephen um, continues to stay fiery and energized, I mean, the church is going to continue to stay fiery and energized, and it's exciting. and And my guess is, when he hits fifty and sixty, and assuming he's still preaching there, I don't really see him ever stopping. Mm-hmm. That you know, if he decides to shift gears and um, slow down a bit probably the church shifts gears and slows down a little bit, you know, that not as a slight, but just, I think that's, you know, kind of the reality. So early on um, we found the church. We loved it. Uh, We were a part of the first Sunday morning that we had in, in February six. And then um, Kelly and I just attended the church for a bit about a, we were the, uh, in fact, I think in that first year, I was the volunteer student pastor at the at the church, which was awesome, you know, we we kind of uh, launched a few uh, different ministries, testing the waters, trying to figure out what was going to work. And then about a year and a half in, I came on board as the creative pastor, and um, I had the good fortune of having a leader, so in Pastor Stephen, who one placed a premium on the creative side of what we were doing. So whether that was. Uh, creative from a design standpoint, it was marketing, as branding, as communication, any of these different pieces that kind of fell into uh, my purview. Because he placed a premium on it, you have the good fortune of feeling like you've got a lot of freedom, but also a lot of accountability. But I'll always take that. If you, if you say, hey, this is going to be a challenge because I'm going to be watching it, but you have the freedom to build whatever you want. My personality is to say, thank you. I love that. I'll, I'll go for it. And uh, we'll see if we can make this work because he gave us so much freedom in building the creative side of the church. And clearly he was heavily involved chief visionary for where we were taking the church, but he also was really comfortable in saying, Hey, I see that you have an interest in, and maybe we didn't use this exact language, but this is certainly the sentiment. I see you have an interest in kind of creating the culture here. And, you know, he, he would jokingly say, I kind of need you to do that because I'll be honest, if I walk over and hang out in the creative department, because creatives generally tend to be um, idea people, a little loose, um, highly disorganized. He said that lack of either structure or maybe just kind of the like seeming chaos might make me want to fire everybody. So I don't know if I want to walk over there and hang out with the creatives too much, even though I love them, I appreciate them. I'm not sure like the way that they do things um, (laughs) is going to get me real fired up. So you do that. I think in, in commissioning me or kind of handing that mandate down, it gave me a ton of freedom to say, great, let's start building this the way that um, we would like to build it aligned with the vision of the church. But the way we would like to build it goes back to that um, comment I made earlier, what we do and how we do it. We were very clear about what we were trying to do. We had a very clear mission, but how we were doing it was in my opinion, the thing that was going to keep this kind of like young ragtag, bad news bears group of creatives together, which was let's enjoy this. Let's have fun doing this. Let's, um, encourage, appreciate each other. Let's have these experiences that are going to reinforce these values that show solidarity, that show commitment. And, you know, some of it probably like crossed lines in terms of like being like overly aggressive or like too, um, uh, too committed if that's possible, because there are times where, you know, I, I can look back and say, uh, yeah, we stayed up all night and, um, uh, we wanted to get these projects done. Well, sometimes you do have to do that to get things done. And I think that's part of like the, the level people will go to that others won't that allow you to be successful. Right. You're willing to do yeah. things other people won't do, but even that comes at a cost because you start to realize like, okay, we're fiery. We're, we're younger. We're, we're zealous. And maybe we um, forget to take care of our bodies. We're like mentally not sharp all the time. Cause we're like, go, go, go. So the, the balance, um, I think developed more over the years, but early on, it was very much like, go, let's just win on adrenaline. Let's win (laughs) on energy, right? We've got a direction, let's go. And then in time, you start to realize like people get a little tired and they have to kind of like sort out, okay, is there a smarter way to do this without losing your zeal and your fire, but maybe applying a little more wisdom and uh, experience to this. But at the end of the day, the culture um, passion that I had was able to be expressed there, because there was a leader who one bought into it Two, I think if you don't get results, it's hard to to get to do anything, but you know, as a ministry or as a church, one, we were seeing results. So in growth in kind of all the standard metrics. So effectively we were winning when you're winning, there's a lot of like, you get a lot of rope, right? You get a lot of margin, a lot of flexibility to do things. So, you know, it's, it's hard to, um, to, pretend like, oh man, we just built this like incredible thing in the creative department or or, like, I led this amazing team. I just think we had awesome people. We had good leadership. The timing was right. There's a lot of things that aligned. And I mean, I just put that in the, in the category of like, God breathed on it. And for the, that window, those 10 years that I was uh, there on the staff, I felt super fortunate. Tried to be really, really, really grateful for what we were a part of. And uh, it was awesome.
1: Wow. It's awesome.
0: Um, And Pastor Steven is a type one and you're a type eight. So I just want to reinforce the necessity for a type eight in a type one's life. Um, I don't know how many times I've heard Lamar on this podcast say that's why everyone needs a type one. So Larry, you get to drive that point home for us, the necessity of an eight, but such a level of self-awareness for Pastor Steven to say, Hey, I want to, um, create this kind of creative culture and then trust you with that. And I do know that a lot of organizations, it's very hard for them to say, yes, I want it to be a fun place and and have a lot of freedom, but equal amounts of accountability. But that's kind of hard to take your hands off the wheel and say, okay, I trust these people to do what needs to be done. Um, but at the same time, how do I balance those two? So, so what are some practical ways that you uh, led that department in
2: freedom and accountability? Uh, I mean, the freedom piece, I mean, maybe even to a fault, right? I, I'm I'm sure I am uh, notorious for saying, Hey guys, you want to take a nap under your desk? I don't care. Just don't distract other people. Don't pull other people off task off mission, but do what you need to do where it would get frustrating is giving that level of freedom to somebody who's not responsible enough to manage that freedom, you know, tends to be problematic because you, you get a 23 year old who's a year out of college and they're like, oh my gosh, this is the best place in the world to work. Cause look at all this cool stuff we're doing. We're seeing people's lives transformed or reading these stories. And we're getting to like play video games during the day. And we're, we've got like a ping pong table. And I'm like, hey, all that stuff is awesome if you have the ability to manage it. Kind of like mm-hmm. a company that says, hey, you know, what? we're going to switch our policy to unlimited PTO. Well, that only works if you trust your people. So, um on the freedom side, we tried to be good about helping people um, realize they had freedom, but also be responsible with it. The accountable side is if you mismanage your freedom, then unfortunately we have to put the training wheels back on. And you know, for, for lack of a better description, we have to hold your hand a little bit and say, all right, let's get back on track and let's start um, building some of these muscles that when you look around and you see somebody who's five years ahead of you, who's uh, whose behavior reflects kind of the lifestyle that you want. You have to recognize, and this is what gets overlooked quite a bit with, with young talent. You have to recognize that they had to figure out how to, um, live within the parameters of the, the, um, structure that was created. So they had to understand discipline. They had to understand managing freedom, being self-aware, being disciplined before they decided, okay, I know myself well enough and I know the dynamics and the landscape well enough where now I can start to deviate from kind of the standards or the norms. So in other words, you got to learn how to like live by the rules before you can break the rules. And sometimes when you look at people that you want to be like, or you want to emulate, or or you want to like your boss or your, you know, mentors or something like that, I use a sports metaphor. Rookies come in and they look at kind of all pro all-star players and they're like, Oh, I want to be just like that. And they try to mimic the behavior Mm. and you realize, behavior is not what made them great it's the 10 years of experience that helped them develop a mindset and attitude and a perspective and a, a skill set where now they can break the rules where when you break the rules you're just following and mimicking behavior when they break the rules there's so much more to it where they see something that other people can't see or they experience something or they've studied enough film where they can predict what's about to happen that to me is like the big danger point that leaders tend to overlook Because it happens in churches all the time. Churches start mimicking other churches, thinking like, that's the magic. I'm like, you don't, you're missing the whole point. The behavior is not the magic. It's the sentiment and the spirit and the people and the timing. It's all those things. But you're, you're simplifying it down to, if I just copy the behavior, then maybe we can also get the same results. And I, I, most of the time, this is not true, right? It's not, that's Saul's armor, right? Right. (laughs) It,
0: yeah, it doesn't work for you. I, working at, at Elevation, uh, the culture still does live strong, work hard, play hard. It's definitely a high accountability, but also high freedom, a lot of freedom. And, and uh, we were really able to operate like entrepreneurs within the organization where, hey, you're responsible for producing the product and doing what you need to do. But you can also go and have a ping pong tournament in the middle of the day and a bench press competition and, and things like that. But um, that last thing that you had mentioned, uh, that's one way that we really use the Enneagram in businesses is helping people to understand, hey, what are what are you, what's your way of leading? What's your way of, of operating? Not the successful people. Because if I were to come into an organization and try and do what Lamar does, I'm going to drain myself because that's not me. Um, but again, another thing when I was working with Elevation in the guest experience and leadership side of things uh, on campus, I would get uh, people from other churches reaching out and asking, Hey, uh, what do you do? What color is your tent? What kind of trash cans do you have? Uh, what, 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 what brand of shirt do you use? I mean, all of those things, what flavor of mints are in the restroom, all of these things that had nothing to do with why we did them, right? Why, why do you use that scent? All of those things that, that on the surface, you know, make elevation great without ever asking why, Oh, tell us about the team that greets first time guests and how do you do it, but never why. And, and then you just miss it. And when you're able to understand that deep rooted, why I think it really just relates well to, uh, to the Enneagram and, and everything that we're talking about. Yeah,
1: Agreed.
2: Well. Agreed.
1: So tell us about, uh, what you're doing now in the business that you run today.
2: Sure. So I'm the general manager for a marketing agency called tiny horse. And primarily we're working in sports and entertainment and, and with different brands, and for the most part, I would say we are a pretty standard agency regarding the services that we provide. So somebody would come to us if they want to work on strategy. They want to work on producing content, um, distributing that content, promoting that content. So our clients would range at the agency on the entertainment side from TV shows and movies that you've, I'm sure, watched uh Dancing with the Stars, American Idol, Transformers, that kind of stuff. Mm. Uh, on the sports side it would be different sports teams or uh, leagues. so we're working with the Premier League uh, in the UK and then on the brand side it could be anything from you know Walmart to uh, a small performance sock retailer that we're working with and then we've got a few a few nonprofit and faith space clients that you know I certainly have a, a, a personal interest in. But at the end of the day, it's, can we help people solve problems? And, and usually it's going to be, can we help them solve them creatively, leveraging technology, um, mostly in the digital landscape. Um, but oftentimes it, you know, it ends up being production or creative work or some strategy consulting. But uh, generally, it's, if we can solve a problem, we'd love to help them. If we can't, then you know, we can't we point them in the right direction, at least the best we can. Yeah. yeah. So uh,
1: how many people do you lead? 15 on my, on my team. Okay. Wow. Mm -hmm. Well, first thing I I do want to know is when you went in there, um, was, was Enneagram, did that become something that was a part of a part of this team as well? And how have you guys leveraged that?
2: Yeah. So part of our onboarding process and interview process is everybody goes through that, um, the testing, which again is, is helpful, but only helpful to a degree, right? So my understanding is, uh, the test is a part of the process and a nice start, but at the end of the day, you might take a year. To really figure out your type and who you are, and and that's great. It's proven to be you know wildly helpful for us because I've got a, um, for example, I've got a head of accounts. Her name's Julie. She's outstanding. Like really makes life better for everybody. She's a six. Well, I know the byproduct of a six. She's gonna worry about a lot of stuff. Well, honestly, she makes my life so much better because when she's worrying about it, I feel like I don't have to be worrying about it. <laughs> yeah. She's like she's on it. She's, you know, similarly to you know, maybe Kelly being so detail oriented, my wife, uh, Julie's going to be detail oriented, but focused on making sure that we, you know, deliver or that we hit timelines or expectations or stay on budget. Awesome. Other folks on the team might be, you know, I've got a, a, a member of our team who's a 3 I'm like, great. This achiever mindset's awesome. And she shows it in everything she delivers on. She's like fast and like always accurate. I'm like, incredible i 'm not that mm. so I need these complementary pieces um, we 've got a couple fours, and they 're like true to form, right Fours are um, for us people who generally end up um, expressing their forness on the creative side um, it's good. they bring kind of a softer side, a relational side oftentimes to our conversations and and try to like humanize some of the decisions that we 're making. So yes, the Enneagram is present in our organization. Um, it was something that we committed to maybe three years ago mm-hmm. and said, we want to use the tool the best that we can. And again, you might hear somebody say like, well, of course she's a four, or of course they are a six or a nine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So knowing that type helps because I, I can tell you that certain types generally work better in certain positions for us, right? What made you decide to use the Enneagram over all of the different personality assessments out there? It's easy. That was the the biggest thing. It was easy to implement and it was easy to apply. So, you know, applied learning usually is a skill set that or an attribute that I look for in people. But it's also because I think it's so important to be able to just um, apply in general. So can you take something and do something with it? Right. Can you learn something new about yourself or discover something and then um, apply it to your life to improve your life? Well, the Enneagram was one of the easiest tools to be able to do that quickly. And again, the rest of the tools, like Big Five and all the others that we mentioned earlier, I think they're all great. I've gone through them and I like them. I just never found myself applying them quite Mm. as frequently or as quickly as I did with the Enneagram.
0: Right. Yeah, that was the reason it stuck with me as well. I had taken uh, Myers-Briggs, DISC, Colby, Culture Index, and some other really long one that I had to do to be a police officer. And they were all surprisingly accurate, but it's like, well, what do I do with this now? And they just all kind of got filed away somewhere. Uh, But then when the Enneagram came around, I actually got introduced to it through uh, Elevation Church when I had applied originally. It was like, okay, this is actually telling me how I can navigate and it's not putting me in this box. And as an eight, that mattered a lot to me. Uh, But as a leader, as a type eight wing seven, how do you find uh, that you communicate and, and maybe your team already knows and understands you enough now to just see it. But in the beginning, how did you communicate some of your shortcomings or strengths and, and uh, weaknesses in a way that allowed your
2: team to come behind you and, and compliment you? Well, I think it's pretty apparent with, you know, with most people, if you're paying attention, where they tend to be strong and where they're, you know, they're weak. I think the bigger issue is usually people don't like to admit it or embrace it. And, um, I've at least at a point and part of it's being 44 years old and, and, you know, I've got enough life experience to kind of recognize that I'm probably not going to win at everything, even though, you know, my personality is to want to win at everything. But if I'm coupled with somebody who's great at, um, operations, I'm going to be way more successful. right. So my role is going to be, can I build teams? Can I lead teams? Can I operate as a visionary? Can I provide direction? Awesome then I need to have complimentary people around me who are excellent at, uh, actually taking an idea and bringing it to life. So in a lot of ways, I would say the things that I do tend to be the things that are more, um, uh, prevalent or more common. And, you know, I certainly think I have a, a, you know, a level of expertise and skill that's helpful and, um, can contribute. But the thing that to me is much more rare and more valuable is the people who can actually pull the stuff off. Now, if you have both pieces, then you can have not just work getting done and boxes getting checked, you can hopefully have quality work, valuable work that serves a purpose or a need in someone's life getting done and boxes getting checked. That's, that to me is like the Holy Grail, right? It's not, can you do work or can you come up with big ideas? Can you do them together? And if you can do that, well, you might actually be able to like meet the needs of an audience or a, a company, an organization, a person, which then you can go build a business around like an agency. Yeah, I yeah. love
1: it. In closing, 2020 has been a wild year. Can you tell us what you've learned from this year, and then going in as we go into 2021, what what are you what are you going to be focused on?
2: Uh, what I learned from this year, um, you know, I worked really hard to try to uh, uh, learn from 2020, right? Because I think it was really easy for me to to want to just say, hey, let's let's write this year off; it's a wash. And I guess I just don't believe that that's God's economy however it was hard to kind of see through the backwash and the, the 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 mess and discover what it was if anything i think i think that in my own life god wanted to paint a picture and say hey i want you to have an idea of how i'm working and i want you to see it with more clarity now because i think i've eliminated a lot of the stuff that generally occupies your attention and your time so whether it was traveling or work and Yes, mm-hmm. still busy and and business is, is going even surprisingly well, given the, you know, the the circumstances of 2020. But I think in all of that, there's been this like, huh, I feel like I have a better personal handle, you know, for my own life and my family. Um, and even for kind of like vision for my life of what's important to God in this season, right? For us. So that was really good in 2020 to be able to kind of step back and say, okay, what does this look like? Especially going into the next year, the next five years, my kids are getting older and graduating and where are we going to... Um, end up in life. So that was good. 21. I mean, certainly I, I would love it to be a little bit of a reset, but I don't know if, if it's fair to think of that because, you know, January is the year or the month that everybody naturally wants to reset. I don't know if I see a whole lot changing in January, right? Just in terms right. of like, right. um, like what's going on in our communities. I think what's going to happen in January is we're going to naturally follow the, the kind of the rhythm and cadence of the calendar and say, okay, January is our resolution time. January is our restart and our refresh. And the thing I'll encourage our team and even my kids and our family to do is let's just set realistic expectations. We're not going to like, we're going to the gym, we're working out three times a day, six hours a day. I'm like, no, we're not doing that. We're going to mm-hmm. con- just continue doing what we're doing and try to do it a little better and recognize that it's going to be a slow process. So 21 for me, hopefully will be a little bit more clarity in terms of, how we can be successful i think that's you know maybe one of the big challenges for me is i always have pictures in my head of how it's supposed to go and i would say 90% of my life rarely goes that way so my ability to adapt and adjust is everything so setting some expectations accordingly will probably do me good
1: <laughs> amazing I love it. I love it. Well, Larry, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. I wish I wish we had the time to ask you 20 more questions because there's been so much good knowledge dropped. Um, so thanks for taking the time to be with me. Yeah, us. of course. Yeah, thanks for the invite. I love it. Maybe we'll get to do it again sometime.
0: Yes, Larry, we'd love to have you back on. Can we confirm that now on air while we're recording? Let's so it. Say no.
1: <laughs> <Let's do laughs> he it. loves. To, he loves to put everybody on the spot with that question at the end. It's like I'm just gonna ask you on live where you're gonna feel less. Pre- we're gonna feel more pressure to say yes. <laughs>
0: Well, I'd love to have uh, Kelly on with you as well um, from oh, her, all, her wisdom and Enneagram perspective. That would be great. But thank you again, Larry. It is an honor. Um, I've really enjoyed connecting and having these conversations and I look forward to more to come. Thanks,
2: guys. We'll catch up with you soon.
0: What an episode. Thank you guys for listening into another episode of More Than Numbers Enneagram for Business. You can find Larry on Instagram, other social media platforms. I would encourage you to pick up his book. If you want to engage with us further, you can check us out at www.truestrategy.info. If you want information on coaching and partnering and development, uh, leading your business and helping to implement the Enneagram as a tool for your business, then you can email us directly info at truestrategy.info. Thank you, guys. See you all next time.